In uh, November of 2004, Corey and I moved to Bellingham so I could go to graduate school up at Regent College. And by that time, we had already been married eight years. And during that eight-year span, there were only six months out of the eight years where we were both out of school at the same time. Now, as much as I enjoyed my time at Regent College, I was mentally counting the days down until I would actually be done with school. The pressure to increase school, uh, well, the, the, the pressure to finish school increased when Sophia was born in, in 2005 and Corey was working full time. In fact, many of you helped save our lives, basically people like Nancy and Christy and Christine and many, many others who uh, uh, helped watch the kids while I was studying and not going crazy. Um, I longed, longed to be finished with school, and I, I remember turning in my last paper, and pack, uh, the whole family, in fact, got in the car, and we handed it in together to the front office. We're like, we are done. The light had dawned, a new reality had dawned in my life, and in our family, and then it hit me. Oh crap, I have to make some serious decisions, right? All those years in undergrad and graduate school, I longed to be done. I longed to be doing what God was calling me to do. But then I was struck by the weight of actually having to make decisions that mattered, right? Decisions that would not only affect my grade, um, but I would have to make decisions that would affect my family. I'd have to communicate ideas that would either help or hurt people. They weren't simply dabbling in theories anymore, or heady words. The new reality of being done with school demanded that I make hard decisions. And that's why I'm crazy enough to plant a church, I guess. That, that was one of the hard decisions that came out of this. The reason I point this, uh, uh, draw this illustration for you is because in a similar way, Israel in the first century uh, was in a similar boat. They were tired of waiting. They were hungry for change. They longed for the coming of the Messiah. And sometime around 6 BC, a young virgin became pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. Angels told her that she was to name this child Yeshua, which means God saves, and he would be known as Emmanuel, which means the with us God. And, well, this child is born, you know that, and he grows up into adulthood. And his cousin John begins this ministry of baptizing people in the Jordan River, about 20 miles from Jerusalem. And this guy John is telling people to repent, to get ready, because the kingdom of heaven is, is drawing near. He's proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven, God's rule, was coming. And that people better get ready. Well, Jesus comes on the scene. And instead of zapping people with thunderbolts, he humbles himself and is baptized by this guy, John the Baptist. He comes out of the waters, and three things happen. Heaven is opened, the Spirit descends and rests on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus the hero of nations and all people is then tested in the wilderness. And last week, uh, we went through that passage where he resisted the devil's temptations. And where Adam failed in the garden and Israel failed in the desert, our hero, Jesus the Christ, succeeded. He's done for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. And that leads us to the story we're going to look at today. I, I want to ask you to stand, please, to... Um, Read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 through 22. 
This is right after Jesus comes out of the desert, after passing the tests. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the great sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who would later be called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. They were mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Do you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for uh, not only your word that's written in this book, but for the living word. And this call to follow you, this call to recognize that your kingdom is breaking in, the call to, to repent, to turn around and trust you is every bit alive right now as it ever was. And I pray for your help. I pray for your help to make that call real to me and to everyone here. Uh, Lord, for those who have been walking with you a long time, I pray that you would stir us up, that you would... Um, Ignite freshness in this call. And Lord, for those who might be here for the first time or have not decided to follow you yet, Lord, I pray that you would stir in in their hearts as well. That you would help us to see your call as a lifetime event. And to trust you. In your name, amen. You may be seated. So we learn that John the Baptist is arrested and Jesus moves his operation away from Jerusalem up to the north in the region of Galilee to the modestly sized city of of Capernaum. Now, why this detail? Why this detail about where Jesus moves his operation to? Well, because in Belgium they served my french fries with mayonnaise and in Italy the pizza was not what I expected though I should have known better. You get what I'm saying, right? People warned us before we backpacked Europe that many things would be the same, but different. Fries are fries, but in a lot of places they serve them with mayonnaise and not ketchup, and I think that's weird. And and in Italy, the place pizza comes from, it's thin crust and marinara, and well, I should have known not to expect Americanized pizza when I went to Italy. But over years of enculturation and morphings of pizza, I realized, I realized that I simply like Chicago-style stuffed pizza with lots of fattening cheeses and every kind of meat imaginable better than I like light, thin, crusty, marinara-based. You're lucky if you get some prosciutto pizza from Italy. That's just, I just like that better. Now, here's my point. God's promises to Israel about a Savior coming to rescue them had been taken by the people over hundreds of years and morphed into something that resembled the original but looked a little bit different. 
By the first century, the popular perception was that the Messiah would, would come and be a powerful military leader who would, whose main concern would be to win freedom, political freedom from Rome to liberate Israel as a nation while also restoring the national worship. So under that assumption, okay, if that's your assumption of what the Messiah is going to be like, where would the Messiah naturally go when he shows up? When he comes out of these waters of baptism and God's talking, this is my son, where would you expect him to go? Any ideas? Jerusalem? Yeah. The center of Israelite power and worship all in one city? Or maybe even Rome. Maybe he would just march right to Rome and clean house. That's what you might expect. But Jesus goes well north of Jerusalem to the province of Galilee. And Jen, why don't you just put the map up just so you can kind of get a, a picture. Uh, map, yeah. So this is Palestine and any chance I get to use a laser? That's, uh, I don't know, so here's the laser. So, so here's Jerusalem. Better use two hands, too much coffee. Uh, Jerusalem's here and then John the Baptist had his baptism ministry about there and Jesus was actually his disciples were baptizing people near John uh, John's gospel tells us that, that Jesus' disciples were baptizing too so when John gets taken into custody he gets arrested Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem he goes way up here into Galilee and settles down in Capernaum which is right there on the sea thank you I guess I didn't need those other ones, but that's okay. To explain why Jesus does that, why he goes to Galilee and not to Jerusalem or not to Rome, Matthew quotes from the prophet Isaiah. And he, he does that to show that the people should not be surprised. God said it might happen like this. Just because they took God's promises and made their own kind of morphing or version of it doesn't mean that God is going to change his original plan to suit that idea. It's the same thing as going to Italy and expecting Americanized pizza. It's just not going to happen, unless you find a pizza hut there or something. The original and authentic stay original and authentic. Okay? So, a little bit earlier, Nancy shared the scripture from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. That's where this quote from in Matthew originates. The background for that Isaiah passage is very important. So let me just kind of try and sum it up for us, okay? Here are the basics. God created people, men and women, in His image. In His image. Our vocation as human beings in life is to be living representations of God. I know you say, you're probably like, Chris, you say that every week. Well, you're darn right, because we've got to get why we were created. To be reflections of God's goodness and character to each other and to taking care of the world. We reflect God's goodness. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, this is a very crude summarization, tells the story of people failing at this vocation time and time again and God giving us new chances time and time again. We fail so many times that by Genesis 12, God says, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick a man named Abraham, and from this man's family, I'm going to choose a people. And I'm going to 
put my presence in this people and I want this people to represent me so well that all the other nations, that all the world would come, would want to come and know who that people's God is and they would all come to worship the one true God. That nation, that people would be known as Israel. And in Deuteronomy, we learn that God did not choose Israel on their own merit. In fact, He chose them because they were particularly small and particularly weak compared to the other nations around them. He chose the small and the weak so that His glory could be manifest. And God instructed them not to worship anybody else, no false gods, but to give full allegiance to Him, Yahweh, the one true God. And in return, he would care for this group of people like his bride and bless them. Well, during the time of Isaiah's prophecy, King Ahaz of Israel was faced with opposition from some very powerful pagan nations, namely Assyria. And God sent Isaiah to comfort Ahaz. He says, Ahaz, don't worry. God is going to rescue you. Trust me. In fact, you can ask for any sign you want, as anything in heaven or hell. Anything you want, I'll do it. And Ahaz was kind of faking piety. He says, oh, I don't want to test the Lord. But what we know is from the book of Kings is that Ahaz had already made his decision. He'd already made an allegiance with the pagan king of Assyria. In fact, we learn uh, from the book of Second Kings that Ahaz actually worshipped false gods in Yahweh's temple. Okay, bad stuff. So Ahaz refuses, and God sends a sign anyway. And this sign, child, it's named Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And we learned that earlier, right? A very good thing, this God with us, if you are on God's side. But if God is with you, and you are maybe worshiping pagan gods in God's temple, it's not a very good sign. It's a very, very terrible sign. And so what happened with Ahaz in, in this nation of Israel at the time was that he allowed Israel or Assyria to brutally conquer Israel because of their betrayal. And some of the first places, check this out, to get conquered by Assyria, Zebulun and Naphtali. Sound familiar? Right? That's right out of Matthew's Gospel. For years, Israel was split up. They were in exile. And that's where this prophecy from Isaiah 9 comes in. That's the context behind it. Watch this. In God's great mercy, He promises to rescue Israel. To do for them what they were supposed to do for the whole world. To be a light to the nations. And how they needed light. And if you haven't noticed, how we need light. Amen? In our Wednesday night Bible study, Collins had a great, uh, he found something great in Matthew's uh, quotation of Isaiah. Matthew changed some words in there. In Isaiah, it says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. But Matthew has switched that up. He says, the people sitting in darkness. And I think Matthew's point there is that during the first century, people had become so accustomed with the darkness that it wasn't even, they weren't even just walking in the darkness, they were just content in it. Sitting complacent in the darkness. By Jesus going to Galilee. Here's, here's where we come full circle. By Jesus going to Galilee, 
he undoes the curse from Zebulun and Naphtali first. We learn at least two things. First, Jesus is the light shining in the darkness that Isaiah was talking about. He's here to undo what was done by Assyria. Zebulun and Naphtali, the first two regions conquered by Assyria, are the first two that he would rescue. Second thing we learn is that Jesus is authentic Italian pizza. He's not the Americanized deep dish. And what I mean is that Jesus came to fulfill God's original plan for Israel, not first century, not first century Israel's adaptation of that plan. Galilee was known as Galilee of the Gentiles because it was on the outer regions of Palestine. It was on the outer regions of, of Israelite worship and culture. And it had many trade routes going through it. You'd have multilingual people there. And so it was also one of the ones that was mixed up with some of the, maybe the Gentile religious views. By ministering to Galilee first, Jesus is making the statement that he is light for the world, not just light for Israel. He's light for the world, we need to hear this, not just light for the church. He's light for the world, not just light for people who call themselves Christians. Okay. As followers of Jesus, we need to, to think about that work of spreading light and goodness and love and truth the way Jesus does to the entire world. How does Jesus introduce this light that he brings? What's his message? What does God say when he visits the earth? Well, here it is. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You've heard that before, right? Uh, hopefully in a couple places. What's one place you've heard that statement before? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Ah, okay, Emily got that one. That's our Zara verse. As a, as a church, we have a core verse that kind of uh, everything that we do in ministry originates from. Our Zara verse is Mark 1, 14, 15. When John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And he was saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Turn around, repent, and embrace this good news. That's, so that's our Zara verse. Where in Matthew have we heard this statement before? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, saying the same thing. Makes sense, right? He's preparing the way for Jesus. In Mark and Luke's uh, Gospels, the phrase is kingdom of God, not kingdom of heaven. And many scholars believe that Matthew is trying to communicate to maybe a more Jewish audience. And oftentimes conservative Jews would say heaven instead of God as a a term of respect. Even today in our slang, sometimes what we say, oh my heavens, instead of OMG, right? Um, oh my heavens. You hear me say that one all the time. But it's kind of this term of, of respect. So the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel is the same as the kingdom of God. It's the same concept. But what is this kingdom of God? I like what Dallas Willard has to say. He says the kingdom of God is the effective range of God's will. Where what God wants done is done. It's not just a theory. That's revolutionary talk. The kingdom of God is at hand. You know what that means to a first century person? That the kingdom of Caesar is no longer the kingdom. That the kingdom of Herod is no longer the kingdom. That the kingdom of God is there. And that means something's got to give. You can't have all these kingdoms at the same time. 
And revolutions are dangerous. We need to be careful, I think, is, I mean, look at us. Sitting here listening to this guy rant up here. We, we are co- fairly complacent. We have freedom in the United States where, we, you know, any of us could pick up street signs and, or signs and we could, we could protest about anything without getting in trouble. There are places around the world right now where you can get shot for saying the wrong thing, for saying one bad thing. You could, you could say how uh, a country's leader, you don't like what they're wearing, and you could be put into prison and no one would know about it. And this is a dangerous, volatile time in history. And so this guy, Jesus is there preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. That's revolutionary talk. I think we need to recapture the sense of, of fear and excitement that's all wrapped into the same thing. We need to beware not to keep this kingdom of heaven as this conceptual language, something to be talked about over cigars and scotch. Just some theory. Although, if you want to have cigars and scotch, we can talk about things. But But we need to be careful that we don't just allow our language of the kingdom to remain up here. This is where the rubber meets the road. Jesus is saying, time is different now. Get ready. God's kingdom is actually breaking into human history. This is a revolution and you don't want to be on the wrong side because Emmanuel, God with us is on the scene and there is no neutral. Like, have you ever tried sitting on a fence? It's not comfortable. You can't just stay. You've got to pick a side. And that's, that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. That, that reality is different. The kingdom of God is breaking in. Emmanuel is here. Where do you align yourself? So Jesus uses this word. Repent. Metanoete. I don't know about you, but when I hear this word repent or repentance, I often... Think of this angry guy on the side of a street with a, a sign that has flames on it, right? Turn or burn or something like that. Or, or sometimes I think of repentance as this, in, in terms of feelings, like I should feel really bad for my sin, a, a specific sin in my life. And our, our culture, I think, repentance has been warped to focus too strongly on our feelings. In fact, It's almost exclusively about how you feel about something. But the word metanoete, repentance, means simply to turn around, to change direction, to change your life. It doesn't really say anything about how you feel about that. It's like something like this. (laughs) Emmanuel's here, and you've got to pick a side. It doesn't say how you feel about that. It just says, you know, you can either be with them or against them. Now, feelings are going to be associated with it, but it's not about the feelings. I love that this initial call from Jesus to repent, to change, to turn around, it doesn't come with a list of rules, does it? It doesn't say stop listening to that kind of music or stop hanging out with those people or stop watching those movies or quit your job and move to Africa. It doesn't say those things. Repentance will lead you to make life choices. And certainly God does call some people to Africa, whether for three weeks or for a long, long time. But I love that Jesus, really, what he's doing is giving you dignity, giving me dignity, and simply calling us to repent. I think he gives us dignity by making the call general. Turn for whatever is keeping you from embracing the kingdom. Now, if there are 80 people here, let's say, There's going to be 80 different things keeping us from the kingdom of heaven. 
That's why Jesus doesn't give us a list of things, because it's going to be different for every one of us. My idols, the things that I hold on to for security instead of Jesus, might be different than what you're going through. So the fact that Jesus doesn't give us specifics isn't licensed to say, well, I guess it's no big deal. He's actually giving you great dignity because he says, you know, with the power of my spirit, if you think on this, you know what it is that's holding you back. You don't need a preacher to tell you how to think and how to feel. Now, to reinforce the radical nature of repentance, Matthew tells us a story. He tells us that Jesus approached these fishermen, two brothers, Simon, who's later going to be nicknamed Peter, and his brother Andrew. They're fishing, and Jesus says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of people. Later on, Jesus encounters John and his brother James. These are the sons of Zebedee, and he calls them to follow as well. And these four men left their family, their business, their lives, as they knew it at least, to follow Jesus. Two simple things I want to point out here. First, you've got to love how Jesus does evangelism. This is his first evangelistic endeavor in Matthew's Gospel. Does he tell people how sinful and rotten they are and that they have to pray a certain prayer? I don't see him do that. Does he quiz them on theological points or debate the existence for God? I don't see him doing that. Does he have uh, people come forward during worship um, to show their conversion or have us close our eyes and people raise hands or have an altar call? He doesn't do that. I'm not saying that those are bad things. Those are important things in our life. But he doesn't start there. Jesus calls people to do what? Follow him. To follow him. For a rabbi to call someone to follow them did not mean, hey, let's go for a walk around the lake and then we'll be back by supper. That was technical language for a rabbi. Follow me means come be my student. Come live with me. Let the dust of my feet collect on you. Come into my house. Eat with me. See how I interact with my family. Come learn the scriptures with me. Come watch how I serve other people. Follow me means come and be my students for a long, long time. Learn to do what I do. To be a student of Jesus is to get acclimated for life in the kingdom. Because guess what? The stuff that we sing about, the longing for the kingdom to come and to make things right, it's going to be very uncomfortable for us when that kingdom comes, if we're not kind of accustomed to it, right? Like, who wants to praise Jesus all the time if we don't like doing it now? Who, who wants to love your, love your enemy as yourself if we can't get that now? Like, it's going to come. When the kingdom comes, there's not going to be like an easing into it. It's going to come. And, and, and so Jesus is saying, follow me. Learn how to get acclimated to this kind of life. Wherever you are, if you're just making a decision to follow Jesus, or you've been worshiping Jesus for years and years, following Jesus, being his student, is a lifelong journey. This lifelong journey is not a cycle of sin, feeling sorry for it, and asking Jesus for forgiveness and calling that repentance. That's 
not repentance. Let me just say that one more time because I know a lot of us are there. I struggle with this too. Living a life of repentance as a student of Jesus is not sin, begging him for forgiveness, and then feeling good about myself. That's religious self-help. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. When we are called to follow Christ, we are summoned to an exclusive attachment to a person. This is the essence. I just got to stop for a minute. This is the essence of Christianity, that, that we follow a person, not a book or philosophy or set of ideals. We follow a person. Okay, I'll get back to Bonhoeffer. He's better. This is him again. The grace of his call bursts all the bonds of legalism. It's a gracious call, a gracious command. Christ calls, the disciple follows. That is grace and commandment in one. Discipleship means adherence to Christ. An abstract Christology, an abstract doctrinal system where we just follow a bunch of rules, a general religious knowledge on the subject of grace or of Jesus or of God or of forgiveness of sin, rather than real discipleship, is superfluous. It's a waste of time. It's fleeting. It's not real. That was just the first thing. Second thing, Jesus' call to follow him is nothing short of radical. Radical. The first disciples actually left their livelihood to follow him. They weren't rich. But in kind of the Roman social structure, they were in the artisan class, which was actually a very small percentage of the population. They were what I guess we might call middle class, although that didn't even exist. But, you know, they had a business. Uh, we learned that uh, from John's gospel, that, or Mark's gospel, that uh, Zebedee, the father of James and John, he actually had some hired help. So they had some, a family business, but they also had enough money to hire people. And, you know, they're probably doing okay. Probably doing all right. They weren't slave class. These first four disciples heard Jesus' call to follow him, to be their students, and they actually left that to go with him. Following Jesus is costly, and repentance means nothing short of change. But revolution is here. The light has dawned. And repent and make your decision. Don't delay. Be ready. That's the force of this story. That's what it's, I think it's trying to communicate is that the light has dawned. What you've been waiting for is here. It didn't look like it. You were expecting Americanized pizza, but you got the Italian. You got the real thing. But it's here nonetheless. And so now I'm putting the ball in your court. I think the story is saying, decide. The, dawn, the light has dawned. Now we need to decide what to do. The good news is that the kingdom is available to any person, to all people who repent and become students of Jesus. And almost better news, I think, is that when Jesus calls us to do something, he gives the grace and the power to actually follow through on it. You may not feel that way today. You may feel like, wow, this call to follow Jesus, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I can do that. If you don't want to do it, I can't help you there. But if you think you can't do it, I can help you there. 
Because the good news I have to share is that when Jesus calls us out to do something, He always, always, always equips us to do it. And yeah, we're going to fail at it and make mistakes. And that's where grace kicks in. This whole endeavor is loaded with grace. You couldn't have come here tonight unless God was calling you. I don't know if you knew that. That's, the gospel tells us that you cannot come to the Father unless He draws you. You're freaked out now, aren't you? Your mind's blown. That's grace. This whole life of ours is just surrounded and uplifted in grace. That Jesus calls us to the kingdom is grace. That there is a kingdom to be called to is grace. And there is grace when you decide to trust in Him. He will allow you to do that. So, I leave it in our court, really. I don't want to have this distance between us. Where are we? Where are you? Because I've got to ask myself that question every day too. The kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus is calling us to be his students. Not just to get our theology right. He's calling us to be his students, to do what he did. Do you hear him calling? Let's pray. Jesus, I was thinking that, um, you know, I wish, I wish this whole thing about being a Christian and following you was, it was easier. But then I thought how lame that would be. <laughs> I thank you that you, um, you call us to something worth living for. I, when I look at your life, Lord, I want to be like you. I want, to, I want to learn to be patient, to be uh, with my eyes attentive to the needs of others instead of myself all the time. I want to learn what it is to trust the Father like you trusted Him, like you trust Him. I want to learn from you what it is to, to walk with that complete confidence in who you are without being arrogant at the same time. I thank you that when you call us, you equip us. That you don't call us to things that are impossible. So Spirit, I pray that you would um, move in each heart as it needs to be moved in. That you would release faith and trust and help us to become more like you. In your name, amen.